This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. The next couple of weeks are going to actually be somewhat more intellectual, academic, whatever word you might choose. The guests are real powerhouses of intellect and are focused on various different arenas of academic study. In this case, this week, starting with Yoram Ettinger, a real expert in the U.S.-Israeli relationship, a 30-year veteran of both Israel's civil service as well as in the private sector for a nonprofit foundation doing research on Arab demography, United States-Israel symbiosis, and many, many other topics. Yoram is a fascinating figure with a wealth of knowledge, but also a very warm and passionate person who I really enjoyed speaking with. And again, the next couple of weeks probably will be people of the same genre of guest, people who have made real forays into a particular area of academic study, but who also are bringing their knowledge to the popular masses in an attempt to inspire and influence the Jewish world. A reminder, as you are listening to, please make sure you are subscribed so that future episodes will come to you without any effort. And also please share with your friends, family, acquaintances, even enemies if you so choose, to do the same. Also, a reminder to follow us on social media, Instagram at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully, Facebook the same, Twitter Jews You Should Know with the letter U instead of the Y-O-U. We greatly appreciate it. And now, without further ado, to our conversation with renowned Israeli patriot, civil servant, and thought leader, Yoram Ettinger. And we are here with Yoram Ettinger, a renowned policy expert on many, many areas relating to the state of Israel. How are you, Yoram? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you. Likewise, I think I first heard your name from Sarah Stern of Emmet. Uh-huh. Well, she's a... Uh quite an Eshet Chayil, a woman of uh, valor, both in her personal family life and uh, increasingly in the area of U.S.-Israel relations. Absolutely. And uh, she's a powerhouse in that area. And uh, when I asked her about different recommendations she might have, probably about a year ago when I interviewed her, uh, yours was one of the the first names that she mentioned. So I'm glad we finally uh, were able to connect. So Yoram, take it from the top. Uh, we hear your wonderful uh, Israeli accent in English. So tell us exactly where you're from and where you grew up and so forth. Well, I, I reside in Jerusalem and I've had some uh, 50 years experience in the context of U.S.-Israel relations, which uh, started after my military service here in Israel, where I came to El Paso, Texas, to do my undergraduate. From there, I went to, to UCLA. 
UTEP. <laughs> and, uh, and from there, I went to UCLA to do my uh, uh, master's. And at the end of my time at UCLA, uh, I was asked or offered by the Israeli Consul General at that time in Los Angeles to join their team as an information officer, which I did for three years at the Israeli Consulate General in Los Angeles. Then I came back to Israel. I uh, established and headed a Middle East research unit uh, in the Israeli civil service. And I did that for 10 years. And uh, after 10 years, I was posted by the Israeli government as uh, consul general to the southwestern states based in Houston, Texas, which got me acquainted with uh, Texas culture, with bluegrass, country western, uh, songs, and state of mind. And, and barbecue, uh, I hope. Um, little of that as well, but mostly, mostly. And I appreciate it until today, mostly the contact with the small town America, country types and country state of mind. And then I went back to Israel. Uh, I was the head of the government press office for two years. And then I returned to the U.S. to the Israeli embassy in Washington uh, in charge of our congressional relations, which was uh, the most uh, challenging, exciting time in my uh, civil service career uh, in the Israeli civil service. And I familiarized myself with the concept of uh, co-equal, co-determining U.S. Uh, legislature, which Many Americans, let alone many Israelis, fail to uh, absorb, fail to understand. And uh, then I went back to Israel at the end of '92. I retired from the Israeli civil service, established my own operation, which I sustain until today. And this is under the second thought a non-profit foundation second thought uh, which just like the name suggests uh, is always seeking the second way of thinking namely out of the box uh, thinking non-conventional approach to u.s israel relations to the palestinian issue to the jewish arab demographic context and many other uh, such uh, issues. Wonderful uh, sweeping overview of a very busy and exceptional professional life. What got you initially interested in these kinds of things? Where, where did you grow up in Israel? Well, I grew up, strangely enough, in uh, Tel Aviv. And uh, growing up in Israel, uh, to be honest, and I'm embarrassed to say I could care less about ideology or politics or national security. I was fully preoccupied with playing soccer and uh, basketball and tennis. Uh, it was my years 
uh, of undergraduate and graduate in the U.S., where I was exposed for the first time to the challenge faced by Israel uh, on American campuses in the U.S. at large later on uh, on Capitol Hill. And for the first time, I uh, realized the significance of being a Jew, of being a member of the Jewish people, of being a citizen of the Jewish state. And it was the first time where I was also exposed to the very unique ties between U.S. and Israel, which are very, very different from any other set of ties, whether it is U.S. ties with other countries or Israel ties with other countries. I'm not familiar with any type of uh, international relations which resemble uh, the U.S.-Israel connection, which, by the way, goes back uh, way, way before the establishment of Israel, many years before the Holocaust. In fact, years, many, many years before the organized Jewish community in the U.S. It goes back all the way to 1620, the arrival of the Mayflower to the newly found uh, land today, the United States, that's when the roots or the seeds of very special U.S.-Israel relations were planted. Beautiful. So interestingly, you say that growing up, you didn't really have much interest. Did, did your time in the army, or what did you do in the army, and did your time there spark anything, or was only once you went to the U.S., to, to uh, Texas, El Paso, and that you first started to gain this appreciation? Well, uh, in the military, I was a first lieutenant in the Israeli artillery. And once again, uh, I was not involved uh, with any youth movement, which at that time was very popular in Israel. Uh, I was fully, fully preoccupied with Israeli sports and my own personal uh, sports, as I said, soccer, basketball, some uh, tennis. But I remember uh, at uh, UT El Paso, uh, there was a, a noontime panel one day uh, which presented an uh, anti-Zionist rabbi from New York, uh, an Arab League activist from San Francisco who came to campus and a local UT El Paso policy professor, they tore Israel apart. And there was nobody on the panel or in the audience who had anything uh, positive to say about Israel. I'm embarrassed to say that with my lack of knowledge, information, interest, I was totally useless in that setting. But I came uh, to the home of my uncle, my late uncle and uh, aunt, who uh, hosted me during my three years in El Paso, and I was shocked. And I shared with them my uh, sentiments. A few weeks later, it was a telephone call from the Israeli student organizations in New York who alerted me 
to a rising anti-Israel tide on American campuses. And uh, mind you, that was in the late 1960s. And they urged me to become uh, involved. And that got me into a totally different direction from my studies, which had to do with business administration and accounting. In fact, I was certified as a CPA in the U.S. while I did my graduate studies at uh, UCLA. Uh, but increasingly, I became involved in uh, pro-Jewish, pro-Israeli activities. I spent uh, my uh, vacations uh, studying in uh, Los Angeles uh, libraries, studying uh, Zionist history, Jewish history, U.S. Uh, history, and uh, that, in a way, set me up where I'm here today, fully 100% convinced and meshed Zionist, uh, Jew, and uh, a person who considers uh, U.S.-Israel relations, again, to be very, very special two-way street, benefiting both the U.S. as well as Israel. I'm surprised to hear that in Texas, there was such an anti-Israel sentiment. You know, outside of Austin, you think of Texas as a more conservative state and, a, and culture. Well, the, that panel uh, that I refer to did not reflect the sentiments on the campus. In fact, I benefited from pro-Israeli sentiments on the campus at large. I joined a fraternity, which for me as an Israeli was <laughs> uh, like a Hollywood experience. I used which, to... Which fraternity see, did you join? Well, it was not a Jewish fraternity. They accepted, uh, they accepted me in spite of the fact that I was a Jew, uh, they had difficult time, quite frankly, as I had, uh, to decide whether I was a Jew religiously or nationally or ethnically or culturally. <laughs> uh, they were fascinated by me being an, uh, an Israeli. I assume uh, playing soccer, I was the captain of the UTEP soccer team. So that uh, wow. provide a tailwind. Uh, I played uh, basketball, not the level of Americans, but I could play with my fraternity uh, brothers. So I was accepted. I was, in fact, uh, elected uh, the treasurer of the student body. I enjoyed very much the positive welcome by the student body, uh, by the uh, staff, the academic uh, staff. That anti-Israel panel was an exceptional event, but it hit me very, very strong, and it awakened me. It awakened me to a challenge, which I realized later. Not until I got to UCLA did I realize the immensity of the challenge faced by Israel uh, in the U.S. at large, especially, but not only, on American campuses, and that led me to further uh, research and studies, uh, which exposed me, which exposed me to the reality of uh, the U.S. and to the huge, still untapped uh, potential of uh, American goodwill towards uh, Israel. Uh, not so much 
in the big urban centers, uh, New York, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, uh, Miami, etc., uh, but especially in small-town America, and more so in what Americans called the flyover areas of uh, America. Flyover which, country, yeah. Right, which many Americans do not frequent, uh, let alone uh, Israelis. But once you land there, you realize that there is a significant uh, historical uh, somewhat religious, but and I'm not referring only or not mostly to evangelical folks. I'm referring to the public at large, but they have high uh, sentiments of patriotism, uh, high appreciation of national security, high respect for people who stand on their own, who defy significant, huge uh, challenges, and that has led uh, that part of America, again, the flyover parts of America, the small town part of America, to unique positive attitude towards Israel. And as I have increasingly realized, that type of special two-way street relations has provided much, much rate of return, uh, much, uh, much benefits to Israel but also, and much more so, to the United States itself, uh, especially in recent years when it comes to dollar terms, national security, and dollar terms, economy. What brought you originally to go to college in America? Well, my, uh, my late uh, uncle, along with my, uh, my aunt, uh, they invited me after the conclusion of my military service to come and get to know the United States and if I wish also to study. And it was a very valuable experience which until today impacts my daily uh, life. It uh, introduced me for the first time in a serious manner to the English language. I could speak no English when I came to to El Paso. Wow. Uh, and you I went straight had, to college. Uh, I went, uh, yeah, I did. But again, my uncle and my aunt invested much time every single day polishing up my, my English, ex, uh, enhancing my familiarity with the English uh, language. In fact, they convinced me to enroll in regular English classes rather than English for foreigners. Wow. I was, as far as I remember, the only foreigner enrolled in such classes. It required many more hours uh, of studying on my part, but it was an extremely profitable, beneficial uh, investment. And uh, simultaneously, it got me acquainted with part of America which is rarely ex exposed to the vast majority of Israelis, namely small-town America, although El Paso is not a small town, but the style of living in El Paso is much closer to small town than to big urban center. What did you enjoy about the small town mentality and approach? Well, as, as, first of all, as they say in, in Texas, People don't only shoot straight, they talk straight. Huh. And I appreciate much more uh, candor 
even if it uh, uh, doesn't sound pleasant uh, at first, I appreciate much more honest, uh, authentic candor than politeness, which sometimes is, is pretty artificial. Well, and, it sounds like uh, Israelis as well are, are very much in that vein. Uh, especially, especially when it comes to uh, Israel, because as you said, Israelis also are not known for artificial politeness, or <laughs> sadly, not known for politeness. Uh, and that obviously made it easier on me. Uh, I can share with you an experience when I was consul general. I, I was very, very anxious to meet a certain powerful Republican mover and shaker in uh, Midland, Texas. Uh, that was uh, back in 85, 86, when Texas was still mostly a democratic, uh, politically democratic uh, state. And I wanted to expand my network beyond the obvious office holders. And I was recommended to meet that person who showed absolutely no interest to meet me. And uh, that time there was no uh, email yet. So uh, letter after letter, telephone call after telephone were simply ignored by him until one day a mutual friend from a small town next to Midland, Odessa, uh, managed to schedule a meeting. I flew from Houston to Midland, and uh, I remember entering uh, his office, and this Texas oil man, by the way, an independent oil producer, an independent oil engineer, he uh, welcomed me in a very, very unusual way, and I quote, uh, Mr. Edinger, if not for our mutual friend, there wouldn't be a meeting because I don't think there is anything in common between you and me. Now, those days I used to walk around with my Stetson hat, my uh, Tony Lama boots, and I had the Texas pin on, my, on the lapel of my uh, suit. So I pointed at the Texas pin and he said, what do you mean? This is my Texas flag. And I said, absolutely. This is the flag of the Lone Star State, and I represent the state of the Lone Star of David. And I went on to present to him the challenge of Lone Stars and how that challenge forces us to enhance our achievements, to excel. And I said, uh, the difference is uh, pretty uh, small. Uh, your neighbors, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arkansas, Louisiana, they don't like you. Some of them even envy you and hate you. Our neighbors, they hate us, they envy us, they don't like us, but they also terrorize us. And they assault us militarily. But both of us, Texas and Israel, have faced adversity from day one, and therefore both of us excel and shall excel. Cut a long story short, that very unique person, as I said, he was at that time... Uh, probably the Republican uh, kingmaker, movers and shaker in Texas, still around uh, pretty active, has become a very, a very supportive of uh, the U.S.-Israel connection, invited me to Texas for two days to present to his friends the benefits to America from America's ties with Israel, and uh, most more recently, 
May of 2016, I was in uh, Texas at the Republican State Convention. And while I was walking the court, suddenly I heard somebody yelling, Yoram, I look around, here is my friend. And it was not a handshake, it was a, a hug, uh, like two brothers. And we have become, in many respects, two brothers, uh, revisiting after many, many uh, years of uh, missing each other. And he uh, took me around, to introducing me to his uh, friends. But that's only one example of the huge, still untapped uh, potential, especially within the non-Jewish community in the U.S. And as I said before, I don't refer only and not especially to evangelicals, but all Christians in, in America, I believe fundamentally hold Israel in high respect. The problem is many of them don't realize it. And they need a conversation and exposure for them to realize that U.S.-Israel relations is a natural uh, combination, which again benefits both sides, not only Israel. Did you have any uh, relationship with the Bush family during that time? I, I met at that time oil producer Bush Jr. one time, but it was not very, very deep, uh, long meeting. Uh, but I, I met a number of uh, friends of the Bush family, uh, both during my service at the Israeli embassy in uh, Washington and since I have become active within this uh, nonprofit foundation, Second Thought, this involvement has taken me back to the U.S. annually, three, five times on uh, visits uh, ranging from two weeks to five weeks visit, and every visit takes me also back to Texas for a couple of days. So I've had opportunities to meet a number of uh, friends of the Bush family. Uh, but again, when it comes to Texas, that Lone Star mentality, that country mentality, that defiance of the jagged cutting edge of nature mentality, that has made most uh, Texans, not all, but most Texans, natural allies of the U.S.-Israel front. Has that become more difficult over time where the other, let's say the surrounding states, have begun to portray Israel as the Goliath and, and themselves as David, whereas in the earlier days of the state, it was pretty self-evident that Israel was the Lone Star, as you put it, was a small, beleaguered state suffering at the hands of, of a sea of surrounding enemies. Well, uh, we are still a small uh, star, and irrespective of the public relation campaign or propaganda campaign trying to portray Israel as uh, evil, the deep Judeo-Christian state of mind in American history has made it uh, relatively easy to present to Americans the common denominator. The challenge is to familiarize ourselves, uh, Israelis or uh, American Jews or any friend of Israel, to familiarize ourselves with those 400-year-old uh, roots. Uh, for instance, when I assumed my role at the Israeli embassy dealing with the U.S. Congress, I paid, obviously, many visits to Capitol Hill. 
when you when I first entered the hall of the House of Representatives, I noticed that around the hall, inside the hall, the General Assembly, there are 23 busts of the heads of the leading 23 uh, lawgivers in human history. And lo and behold, at the center, our own uh, Moses. And not only at the center, but he is confronting the Speaker of the House. And more than that, the bust of Moses is the only one of the 23 looking straight. All the other busts are in profile. Uh, upon being introduced to that very intriguing setup, I asked the house, uh, the Capitol building uh, curator, uh, why is this bust different than all other busts? And the house curator said, aren't you a Jew from Israel? Don't you know that Moses is the source of human law and the other lawgivers are the byproduct of the source? And therefore, the source stares at the speaker. So the speaker will always realize what's the source, and the byproducts stare at the source. And therefore, they are in profile, and Moses looks straight. Uh, all you need to do is cross a small street between the Capitol building and the U.S. Supreme Court. And as you go upstairs and you enter the main hall of the U.S. Supreme Court, you realize that above the seats of the nine Supreme Court justices, at the ceiling, there is a statue of Moses holding the tablets, staring at the nine Supreme Court uh, justices. And this is one of eight sculptures and engravements of Moses and the Ten Commandments throughout the Supreme Court building. And the same thing exists throughout the U.S. There is the Ten Commandments monument uh, on the ground of the Texas Capitol Hill, uh, and there is an identical monument of the Ten Commandments on the ground of the Oklahoma and the Arkansas Capitol uh, buildings. And when you watch the political discourse in the U.S., People refer to major, major movers and shakers like the Moses of our time. And one does not need to be a special ally of uh, Israel to resort to biblical metaphors. The late Robert Byrd from uh, West Virginia, who was one of the most problematic uh, legislators when it came to U.S.-Israel relations. He was a former Klansman, right? Right. But he was renowned for resorting to biblical uh, metaphors. Uh, I remember Tom Harkin. Tom Harkin was not uh, anti-Israel senator, but certainly was not one of the leading supporters of Israel in the U.S. Senate. And uh, Tom Harkin, uh, one of the leading doves and liberals uh, among Democrats on Capitol Hill before he retired, I believe, in 2014, Tom Harkin led the Obamacare battle in the Senate, and at the conclusion, at the conclusion of the battle, he assembled the press conference, and the first sentence uttered by the very dovish liberal uh, Democratic Senator Tom Harkin 
at the press conference was I would like to congratulate Majority Leader at that time, Senator Harry Reid, for displaying the humility of Job and the might of Samson and the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, I wish that uh, secular members at the Knesset in Israel will resort to such metaphors when they conduct uh, Knesset debates. I wish that we would have at the Knesset or the Israeli Supreme Court the statue of Moses and the Ten Commandments. But those are few of uh, litany, litany of examples that demonstrate the deep, deep roots binding together the United States on the one hand and Israel, the Jewish state, on the other hand. Do you worry that in today's climate, there's been a pronounced secularization of the United States, certainly the United States elite? Do you worry that that shared ethic is disappearing? Well, I'm, I'm obviously concerned about potential impact of the changed demography in the U.S. upon the future of the U.S. in general, not only U.S. ties with Israel. And I'm concerned because the globe, the world, humanity, uh, need a very assertive, very strong, very independently acting United States in order to minimize global instability, global violence, uh, global uh, incoherence. A U.S. which uh, deteriorates as far as its military might, as far as its economic uh, might, would be less of an asset to global uh, stability. And I derive my concern uh, from the European precedent. Uh, Europe today is not the Europe of 30 or 40 years ago. It's increasingly a liability upon the world at large rather than an asset for the world at large. It does not constitute water to global fires, but increasingly more fuel to global fires. And uh, my concern is for the U.S. to retain its very positive, unique role in uh, leading global reality. A U.S. which becomes just another member of the U.N. Uh, would stop being the classic uh, U.S. Uh, we need a U.S. that follows classic American ideals of patriotism, of independence of action, rather than the U.S. which follows the rest of the world. Yeah, and it seems like you fear that that's changing. Is that a function of changing demographics and demographic composition or of changing ideology even from within the same demographic? Well, it's, it's both, but demography is moving pretty fast, has moved pretty fast in recent uh, years. And uh, certainly that has produced change. Uh, I can share with you my own personal experience. I keep very close contact with Capitol uh, Hill. I visit the Hill three, sometimes five times a year. And increasingly, I meet staffers bearing Muslim uh, last uh, names. Now, it does not have to mean 
departure from classic U.S. ideology or policy, but it certainly uh, shed light on the on the potential. The fact that uh, you have today uh, more Muslim legislators, uh, not many, still single low single digit. But the question is, uh, does it open the door for significantly more such legislators or not? And the issue is not really whether they are Muslims or Christians or Jews. The issue is the ideology that guides them. And certainly, uh, the U.S. has benefited from what Americans refer to as Judeo-Christian ideals, which again go back to the early pilgrims and then the founding fathers, and specifically the formulation of the U.S. Constitution, which uh, relied to a large extent not only on leading uh, British and French uh, philosophers, but also on the Old Testament and specifically on the five books of Moses, and that has produced the most productive ever country in the world, certainly in the last 400 years. And the question is, would a departure from those Judeo-Christian values, ideals, would, would it erode the sophistication or the contribution by the U.S. to itself as well as to the global community or, or not, there's certainly, there's certainly the, the possibility of such an erosion which could undermine the U.S. and therefore it's the U.S. ties with the rest of the world, including Israel. Can you share with us any other stories of your time spent in diplomacy and in advocacy uh, around the world. It sounds like until 1992, you were engaged in this sort of process in a more official capacity or in a representative capacity on behalf of the Israeli government. And since 1992, more of as a private citizen and as a uh, member of a, of a think tank of sorts, of a foundation that uh, is spreading the promoting the U.S.-Israel relationship. Uh, what have been some, some highlights for you uh, over the last 20 or so years of this kind of work? Well, uh, my, my efforts have focused on an attempt to always highlight the American interest. Uh, I, I do not approach folks on Capitol Hill, off Capitol Hill, by promoting Israeli interest or so-called Israeli drift. Uh, I've always tried to focus on the American drift. And one such example was at a time when there were attempts uh, by Israeli uh, leaders to uh, retreat from the Golan Heights. And I remember visiting uh, office of some significant U.S. senators and presenting to them the impact of Israeli withdrawal from the Golan on America's uh, interests. And the initial reaction was, oh, come on, Yoram, that's between you and the Syrians. And then my uh, response to that was, well, if Israel retreats from the Golan Heights, uh, there is a question what would happen, I'm talking about 
the mid-1990s, early 1990s, after the Oslo Accords of 1993. And I said, uh, if Israel withdraws from the Golan Heights down to the Lake of Galilee, what would happen to the five to seven mechanized armored Syrian divisions which are stationed between the Golan Heights and Damascus attempting to protect Syria from a possible Israeli invasion on Damascus. And again, the response was, who cares? Whatever Assad wants to do, that was Papa Assad, let him do that. And I said, well, what about taking five of those divisions to the border between Syria and Jordan, which is perceived in Damascus as part of southern Syria. Do you think the Jordanian military has the capacity to withstand a Syrian invasion to Jordan? Or do you welcome the possibility that you will be asked to deploy military power and fight on behalf of Jordan against pro-Soviet Syria? And always the response was, dumbfounded uh, stare, and then Yoram sat down, let's talk about it. We never thought about that uh, possibility. And uh, more than that, my concern at that time was about a very, very illogical, uh, I would call it even suicidal proposal forwarded by some Israeli leaders to have American troops on the Golan Heights ensuring the existence, the survivability of the Syrian-Israeli agreement. And my question to American legislators at that time was, do you realize that when you send American troops to the Golan Heights, you send them to an area where they're going to be surrounded by a bunch of very lunatic Islamic terror organizations? And how long before the first American soldier is either injured or murdered or kidnapped or cut to pieces. And what impact would that have, for instance, on anti-Semitism in the United States? And once again, I found out that neither American Jewish leaders nor congressional leaders in Washington even uh, contemplated such a scenario and I know for a fact that that type of scenario had an impact on the attitude by very significant American leaders of the House and mostly in the Senate, which led to the withdrawal from such an irresponsible uh, scenario. What are some other features of Israeli, uh, of the Israeli-American relationship that you like to highlight as beacons for American development? Well, uh, one example is uh, the city where I reside, Jerusalem. The current administration is the first one to recognize reality, to recognize uh, history. And unlike the old predecessors from President Truman in 48 until uh, President Obama, the current one recognized Jerusalem as capital of Israel, but more than that, has transferred the embassy to Jerusalem. Most people consider that to be as a very, very outstanding gesture 
towards the Jewish state. And while it is, at the same time, it is consistent with America's best interest. And I believe that the current administration, and especially, and especially the president, his national security advisor, John Bolton, whom I've known for the last 30 years, certainly former Congressman Mike Pompeo, the current Secretary of State, and above all, uh, the ambassador to Israel, uh, David Friedman, they all understand that relocating the embassy to Jerusalem also serves America's best interest. Because for America, for so many years, to refrain from recognizing Israel, uh, Jerusalem as capital of Israel mm -hmm. and Jerusalem as capital of uh, Israel reflected deterrence uh, by Americans from threats of terrorism, uh, deterrence in face of pressure by Arabs. And that type of American profile, which is deterred by Arab pressure, by Arab threats, by Muslim terrorists, has eroded the clout of America in the global sphere and in its encounter confrontations with the Ayatollahs of Iran, let alone the arm wrestling with Russia and China. For the U.S. to relocate the embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing Jerusalem as capital of Israel, also it uh, basically amplified a statement. U.S. is not deterred by pressure. U.S. does not retreat in face of Islamic terrorist threats. The U.S does the right thing, the U.S. recognizes uh, history, and the fact is that contrary to the doomsday sayers, there has not been an adverse reaction since that game-changing decision by President Trump. And the same thing, by the way, goes for the Golan Heights, recognizing reality namely Golan Heights, historically and certainly from national security point of view, is an integral part of Israel, should have been natural for the U.S. But the fact is that it took a number of presidents before a president arrived and deciding to do the right thing, which has served America's interest, enhanced America's posture of deterrence, which is so critical for America's homeland security, America's national security, and America's standing in the world at large. What are the major projects that you work on today? What are some of the you know, actual research that you're doing or, or uh, specific initiatives that you're leading? I've read that you're a, a major proponent, or perhaps I could say opponent, of what uh, you might term demographic fatalism, uh, the notion that I, I suppose you could explain it better than I, but that Israel is about to be subsumed by foreign uh, interlopers, and that will cease to become a cease to be a Jewish democratic state. Speak a little bit about about that point, if you will, and and also generally what you are working on and what you're really focused on in your current role in the Second Thoughts Foundation and the newsletters you send out and so forth. Well, while the, the focus of uh, my research 
my operation has always been U.S.-Israel uh, relations as well as uh, the Middle East at large. In recent years, I have uh, invested much time together with friends in the U.S. and uh, Israel researching the actual demographic balance between Arabs and Jews in Israel and I would say west of the Jordan River, namely in the combined area of Judea, Samaria, otherwise known as the West Bank, as well as pre-67 Israel, as well as Gaza Strip, by the way. And just like other areas of research, I've always tried to highlight the non-conventional element. And uh, the conventional attitude towards demography has been that there is a demographic time bomb at the doorstep uh, of Israel. And unless Israel takes a very painful retreat from Judea and Samaria from the West Bank, Israel is going to become very soon a uh, Jewish minority society rather than Jewish majority. Researching that conventional, demographic conventional wisdom, uh, researching it in the last 16 years have uh, produced a very well-documented uh, conclusion and a conclusion which is not based on assumptions or projections or assessments, but on hardcore uh, facts, mostly, by the way, Palestinian documentation. Unlike the establishment in Israel and in the U.S., uh, we have not amplified uh, Palestinian numbers without auditing them. Uh, the team which I represent, three Americans, six Israelis, we have conducted a thorough audit of those numbers, and we have come to a very clear uh, conclusion. The actual number of Arabs in Judea Samaria is about 1.2 million lower than the number which the establishment is amplifying, namely it is about 1.8 million Arabs in Judea and Samaria, and therefore the overall balance currently is a 66% Jewish majority. Some may How many Jews are in uh, Judea and Samaria at this point in time? At this time, there are 1.8 million Arabs in Judea and Samaria, side by side with 450,000 Jews. But it's not only the 66% Jewish majority in the combined area of Judea, Samaria, and pre-67 Israel. It's also the demographic trend. We're talking in the last 20, 30 years about an unprecedented westernization of Arab demography. Uh, the listeners, the viewers may not realize that, but contemporary Arab demography, uh, namely level of fertility, number of babies, number of births per woman throughout the Arab world has become westernized. Is that throughout uh, the entire Arab world or you're speaking now predominantly of the local uh, population? I'm, ta I'm talking about, in fact, Muslim world from Iran, including Iran, all the way to Northwest 
Africa, excluding the sub-Sahara African Muslim societies from Iran through Mauritania in Northwest Africa. We're talking about a culture, demographic culture today of something between one and three births per woman, unlike six, seven, nine births per woman only 20 or 30 years ago. At the same time, Jewish fertility rate inside Israel has experienced its most rapid increase in recent uh, years, and especially among the secular Jews in Israel. In the last 15, 20 years, the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel has become unprecedentedly involved in the employment sector, more and more in academic sector to a small extent, but increasingly also in the military sector. That has led to a decline of about one birth per woman. But at the same time, the secular sector in Israel, which is by far the largest sector in Israel, has demonstrated an unprecedented enhancement of fertility. And today, among the yuppies of Tel Aviv, the talk is anywhere between two and three or two and four birth per woman, while only 20 years ago, it was one or two. So we have, on one hand, Jewish community, which benefits from a major, robust demographic tailwind, and at the same time, westernization of Arab demography. How do they, how have the Palestinians inflated the numbers? For instance, unlike all other societies in the world, they include, according to their own records, they include over 400,000 residents who have been away from the area for over a year. They count Arabs in Jerusalem, some 330,000 of them, but those Arabs are also counted by Israeli Arabs with a double count of 330,000 Arabs. There is another double count of over 100,000 Arabs from Judea and Samaria who married Israeli Arabs and received Israeli ID cards. They're also doubly counted by Israel and by the Palestinian Authority. And then we found a major gap between the documentation of birth by the Palestinian ministries of health and education on the one hand, and the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics on the other hand. And more than that, we found out that the Palestinian Election Commission also agrees with the lower numbers of the Palestinian Health and Education Ministry. So we have a substantial artificial inflation of number of births by the Palestinian Authority, which, by the way, ignores the annual net emigration by Arabs away from Judea and, uh, and Samaria. The bottom line, there is a solid 66% Jewish majority benefiting from tailwind, and anyone who is alarmed by 66% and wishing for a much higher percentage, let's remember Ben-Gurion, accepted the partition plan back in 1947, 
with a 55% Jewish majority. He relied on Aliyah, on Jewish immigration. And by the way, in recent years, there's been very meager effort on the part of the Israeli government to encourage increased Aliyah to Israel. When you consider the, Jewish com the size of the Jewish communities in the former USSR, plus Germany, plus uh, England, uh, plus the rest of Europe, you add to that the Jews of uh, Argentina, as well as, by the way, the Jewish community in the US and Australia, to talk about 500,000 olim to Israel in the next five years is a pretty moderate estimate, provided that the Israeli government retrieves the national order of priority, which was in Israel until the end of Prime Minister Shamir's term, highlighting the efforts for expanded Aliyah. Should Israel expand the effort for Aliyah? Should Israel prepare the housing and the and the transportation and the medical health infrastructures of incoming Olim, we will see a much higher Jewish majority in the country. The bottom line, there is a room for much optimism and determination, no room for pessimism and vacillation. Sadly, it seems like the government has turned away from encouraging Aliyah, at least to the Anglo countries because of, you know, po political considerations and the perception of condescension of uh, patronization. Um, I guess you're, uh, you're not a fan of that approach. No, I, I consider uh, Aliyah to be the essence of the Jewish state. I don't put down Jewish communities outside of Israel, but I have no doubt that the Jewish state has a central role in setting the global Jewish agenda. I have no doubt that Jewish upbringing in the Jewish state is preferable to Jewish upbringing anywhere else. And when it comes to the interest, national security interest of the Jewish state, there's no doubt in my mind that Aliyah, the immigration of Jews to Israel, has been the number one factor of Israel's national security, Israel's economy, Israel's technology, and Israel's cultural life uh, as a whole. Without Aliyah, probably there would be much weaker Israel, maybe, maybe there wouldn't be a Jewish state at all. What is contributing to the demographic shift among the Arab population, why is the birth rate becoming so uh, westernized, uh, so to speak? Well, we have seen the phenomena in Israel in particular, but throughout the Middle East, again, from the Persian Gulf to Northwest Africa, with Arab Muslim women enrolling or concluding 12 years of education, unlike prior years of 20 years ago, when they used to get married at the age of 15, start reproductive uh, process at the age of 16, continuing until the age of 55. In recent years, with the expansion of what I would call 
female independence uh, throughout the Muslim world, throughout the Arab world, reflected by Arab women enrolled in 12 years of education, increasingly also in academic uh, life. We have seen the whole reproductive process starting after the age of 20. Today, the average age of uh, Arab women bearing their first child is over 20 years old, and they stop at the age of 45, not at the age of 55. Uh, we have also seen an increased use of contraceptives throughout the Muslim world, and in fact, the leading uh, Muslim country as far as contraceptives has been Morocco in North Africa, the number two Muslim society in the use of contraceptives has been the Palestinian society in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank. The number three society, by the way, Muslim society, has been Jordan, which shares very, very similar elements, social elements, with the Arabs in Israel and in Judea and Samaria. Those are the Palestinians. Absolutely, absolutely. It's surprising though, would you not expect that this kind of a westernizing educational approach would also bring corresponding shifts in ideology? Uh, it, but it seems that there's a radicalization, if anything, um, not a rapprochement among the, the peoples there. Well, we, we have to distinguish between the public at large and the regime, the rogue regime, which rules them. Uh, sadly, all over the Middle East, uh, we, have, we have had historically, until today at least, the phenomena of uh, minority rogue regime controlling the majority. And the majority, for many reasons, being deterred by that rogue regime. In a way, the same applies to the Palestinians. Uh, it's less and less among Arabs in Israel who are the most free society anywhere in the Arab world. There is the hate education among Palestinians, there is hate education among other uh, Arabs, which has led to anti-Jewish way of thinking, but increasingly among those who interact with uh, Israelis, there has been a softening of the attitude towards uh, Israel. And we have seen it, by the way, in series of uh, Israeli elections, including the most recent one of a few weeks ago. Around 50% uh, voters, uh, Arab voters turnout on National Election Day. Unlike the around 90% turnout among Arabs, when it comes to local election. And the question is, why do so many rush to the ballot when it comes to local election and about 50% of them only showing up when it comes to national election? And the response is very clear. They do not respect, they do not trust the Arab parties which are represented at the Knesset Arab parties which are anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, and we saw it, by the way, in a recent election in Nazareth about eight years ago, 
there was an election, and uh, until then, the eternal mayor of Nazareth faced a new guy uh, on the block, and the mayor of Nazareth was a typical anti-Zionist, anti-Israel mayor. The challenger had uh, an election slogan, I care about Nazareth more than I care about Ramallah. And the new guy won already two rounds in Nazareth. The new guy is not identified with any of the Arab parties represented at the, at the Knesset. And therefore, I'm pretty optimistic when it comes to the future of coexistence in Israel, including in Judea Samaria, because the majority understands the benefits from collaboration with Israel and understands the damage caused by confrontation with Israel. Yoram, in, in closing, what is next on the horizon for you? What are some of the projects that you're uh, looking forward to? It sounds like on the whole, you're an optimist uh, in this arena, which is, I think, refreshing, where most people perhaps are, are, are not optimists, or maybe they would call themselves realists. What are you looking to to do next? What do you still feel needs to be accomplished that you can contribute to the conversation? Well, uh, I've always tried to be a realist. Uh, I don't come from an ideological uh, family. I don't come from an ideological youth uh, movement. I've always based my position on hardcore facts. And I have been an optimist as a result of being a realist. I studied about the Jewish state in 1948, and I have watched the Jewish state in recent years, and uh, the only conclusion has to be immensely optimistic. Uh, if one would have told the, the founding father, the giant Ben-Gurion, back in 1948, that by 2019, uh, the U.S. and Israel are going to be global leaders in the development and manufacturing and launching of mini-size, small-size, and medium-size space satellites, even Ben-Gurion, the ultra-optimist of those days, would have asked you, what have you been drinking? What have you been smoking? And here we are, 2019, and indeed, Israel has joined the U.S. in leading in that area, as we have done in unmanned aerial vehicles, as we have done in the area of irrigation, as we have done in the area of artificial intelligence, as we have done, U.S. and Israel, in the area of cyber technology, Israel has emerged as a global leader. And how can one be but an optimist when you watch that? My current focus is U.S.-Israel relations. And I believe that there is a long way to go in presenting to Americans the unprecedented benefits to America derived from U.S. ties with Israel. What does Israel produce for the U.S. through Israel's military operations as well as high-tech and uh, economic operations? Uh, I personally, I am not a believer in uh, foreign aid to Israel. I believe that U.S.-Israel relations are way, way above foreign aid. I am much more of a firm believer 
in U.S. investment in Israel, which has produced literally hundreds of percentage of uh, return every single year to the United States. And I'm very proud to reveal that I played a role in Prime Minister Netanyahu's decision back in 1996-1997 to relieve Israel of non-military uh, foreign aid, what was called economic support fund. I hope that I can be useful in reading U.S.-Israel relations from the current military aid to Israel and exchange it with growing expanded U.S.-Israel joint investments, both in the area of national security as well as in the area of education, of social welfare, of economy at large, and specifically uh, high tech. Yoram, where can people learn more about what you're doing, read your, your work, both your previous works and your ongoing bulletins that you send out? And generally, where can people discover all that you've been involved with and continue to contribute? Well, my weekly uh, opinion columns, which I publish in English and Hebrew, are posted on my website, which is pretty easy to remember. In one word, the Ettinger Report, Ettinger with double T, dot com. Uh, the Ettinger Report, dot com. Uh, one can read my columns as well as watch my brief series of videos on many issues which I deal with. Uh, one can also visit my Facebook uh, account, which highlights those videos as well. And uh, as I mentioned before, three, five times a year, I'm in the U.S. spending a few days on Capitol Hill and then venturing into the U.S. at large, mostly in the flyover areas of America, uh, lecturing, briefing, uh, and I'm open to invitation for speaking engagements on campuses, off campuses, uh, Rotary clubs, Kiwanis, uh, Lions, synagogues, temples. You're a manager, a, a staunch defender of Israel, a creative and innovative thinker in this field, and uh, really a, a treat to hear your passion for all things Israel and for your defense of the Jewish state. Thank you so, so much for joining us. No, thank you for the opportunity and especially to get to know you better. But uh, more than that, to be exposed to many of your listeners and uh, I would welcome another such opportunity. Yoram Ettinger, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.